brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Here we go, Higher Side Chatters. Another day, another deep dive into the unseen things that make the world go round. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood. And many of us are well aware by now that the world is really run from the shadows, the hidden hand, the invisible empire, the puppet masters of the capstone cabal, call it what you want. But what you don't learn about in school is the true power of these secret societies, think tanks, and interlocking organizations set on shaping the world in their image. Yes, the oily appendages of the nefarious few are firmly wrapped around nearly every aspect of life. Finance, weapons, energy, food, education, medicine, media, and more. But there is always a little light in the darkness, and many of us probably remember the first time we stumbled across a book that changed our perspective and opened our minds to the secret society subtext they'd rather we not know about. It's true that the most powerful tools we have are knowledge and the numbers, and these are the reasons we're always meant to be divided, and why book burning is a crucial component of any good old-fashioned tyrannical takeover. Well, today's guest Chris Milligan has definitely given them plenty of fuel for the next fire as he is the man behind Trine Day, one of my favorite publishers on the planet. He's been putting out some of the most eye-opening and credible conspiratorial content available since he started the company in the year 2000. But his story really starts with his father, who was in the Office of Strategic Services, Military Intelligence G2, and later was in the CIA, rising to Branch Chief, Head of Intelligence Analysis for East Asia. Well, one day in the late 60s, his father disclosed some things to Chris that he didn't fully understand at the time, but those breadcrumbs led to over 30 years of research into the subjects of CIA drugs, clandestine operations, conspiracy theory, and secret societies. I'm sure it's been quite a ride. He's even been published in high times along the way. <laughs> He's had a huge impact on me, and if you're a fan of this show, has had a bigger influence on what I've been doing the last 10 years than you probably know. So let's get into it. The great parapolitical publisher, secret society sleuth, and literary luminary from High Times to the Higher Side Chats, Chris, my man, welcome to THC. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you kindly. Good Lord. Yes, man. Thanks for being here. I really wanted to try to roll out the red carpet of introductions for you because the books you've produced have been featured here 
many times. And I couldn't do what I do without the great authors and work that you have published. Just to remind some of the longtime listeners who and what would fall under the Trine Day umbrella, that would be Peter Lavenda's Sinister Forces, Dr. Mary's Monkey by Ed Haslam, Me and Lee by Judith Barry Baker, Lieber 420 by Chris Bennett, Lori Hanrahan's Epidemic, Nick Bryant's The Franklin Scandal, The Most Dangerous Book in the World, 9-11 as a Mass Ritual by S.K. Bain, Daniel Estelin's great books, and of course, Anthony Sutton's work on Skull and Bones, and the 700-plus page fleshing out Skull and Bones that you also contributed to. And that's a good chunk of it. Clearly, any fans of this show are likely Trine Day fans as well, know it or not. And let's start there. Maybe you can give us a little bit more context for the Trine Day story. How did you get started in publishing? How'd you land on that name? How'd Trine Day come to be? Well, I'm a musician mostly, and I became a publisher. I was running a email list called CIA Drugs and had Daniel Hopsicker on there and a lot of other people. And 9-11 happened, and we were all deconstructing it. Mm -hmm. And then after a while, Daniel, he started decrying. He says, I've written a book, and it's been with an agent for over two years in New York, and nobody's going to publish it. And I says, well, okay. And I says, I've got a computer on my desk. They tell me I can make a book. This is come on out and we'll make a book. And a friend of mine had made a book for his wife. And so I got together with him and we got together with Daniel and we made Barry and the boys. And I'd become friends with Professor Sutton. He told me, he says his book was going out of print because it was being printed by a mom and pop printer up in Montana and they were retiring. And I says, Oh, Anthony, that can't happen. Your book is. Never been in hardcover, never been in libraries. So I talked to Daniel about it, Hopsicker, and he said he just wanted to do his book. And so I went out and borrowed $5,000 and started trying day, little knowing what I was doing. <laughs> and I won a contest with my cover design for America's Secret Establishment and got a distribution contract. And trying day came. I had first come up with the name good day publishing but that was already taken and i like oh encyclopedias and dictionaries and i was reading through the dictionary and i came across the word trine and it said auspicious one of its meanings and i says well that's kind of like good and i says well there's a double day why can't there be a trine day trine day also sounds like a trying day and you know going to work can be trying so I figured, why not call it trying day? <laughs> yes, I like that. Obviously, I like a good play on words myself. But let me also ask you about the vetting of the books that you release. I personally think they're really high quality and academic as opposed to just throwing wild claims around like can happen. It seems like the intellectual integrity is pretty important to what makes it into the trying day library. It's got to be a difficult part of the process, right? Yeah, I mean, I turned down more books than I published. I mean, it was very, very interesting when I, you know, I came out with America's Secret Establishment and was looking around for other books. And I got introduced to Lieutenant Colonel Dan Marvin, 
who's the only lieutenant colonel I know who didn't graduate from high school because he was an assassin, among other things. And he had had a relationship to the JFK story assassination. And I thought, well, that's what his book was going to be about. But no, it was this little book about Vietnam. And I knew a lot of the story because my father had been in Vietnam in 56. And because of that, I'd been doing a lot of study about it. And so I understood his book and I says, good, we'll print his book as our second book. And then we did Fleshing Out Skull and Bones. But lo and behold, the Special Forces Association sent us a letter and said that we had to declare Lieutenant Colonel Marvin's book fiction. Hmm. And, you know, I looked at my constitution and I says, hmm, I don't see the Special Forces Association in the constitution saying what we can and cannot print. And they had been doing that. They had already shut down a huge big story on CNN about the yellow rain, the use of nerve gas and toxins in Laos. And what happened there was people at the Special Forces Association got a hold of Henry Kissinger and he called the head of CNN, the president. The president said, oh, this is a bad story. We don't know how come these reporters did this and blah, 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 blah. Well, what most people don't know is that the two producers of that story sued CNN and won a big judgment and stand by the story today. And we had to go to court in South Carolina, Charleston, South Carolina, you know, this lieutenant colonel from New York and this hippie from out in Oregon, and they figured they're just going to, you know, slam dunk it. Well, we got a unanimous verdict that it was a true story and we didn't have to change it to fiction. The other thing that happened was all of a sudden, I just got deluged with, with manuscripts like Lavinda's Sinister Forces and a bunch of other ones because Barry and the Boys wasn't the only book that was circling New York with an agent and not going to get printed. There was quite a few. What we do is we print suppressed books. And like you were talking, you know, there's a reason why they burn books and there's a reason why I print them. <laughs> and another thing is, is, you see, my dad... He started talking to me and, you know, I didn't understand what he was saying. And I started doing research into CIA drugs. And I told somebody about some of my research and some of the stuff my dad told me. And they said, well, you're a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> and this was in the 1970s. And so I start to scratch my head and say, well, what is a conspiracy theorist? And so I proceed to take on conspiracy theory as an intellectual discipline and to study exactly what conspiracy theory is. It's a very wide discipline. It includes a lot of subjects. <laughs> One of the things I found is that conspiracy theory doesn't have to be true to have an effect. Mm -hmm. And I mean, when I first went out there, I would go to bookstores, every kind of bookstore I could find, religious, feminist, straight, every bookstore I could find. And I would go in and say, okay, where's your conspiracy section? Hmm. And all of them had at least one book. So I started reading these books and these books are basically what are known as screeds. And so I'd read these books and I'd say, gosh, 
Because, I mean, I can find a book that blames it all on the Masons. I can find a book that blames it all on the Catholics. I can find a book that blames it all on the Mormons. I can find a book that blames it all on the hippies. I can find a book that blames it all on the secular humanists. And so I says, well, gosh, these are kind of formula books, kind of getting people into little camps so that they don't like the people over there and getting people to fight each other. Yeah. Conspiracy theory is used as much as the quote unquote mainstream poo poos it. They use it all the time and people use it every day to make decisions. The other thing that I found was that I would get these screeds and I would get to their bibliography and I'd go to those books and then I'd read their bibliography. And pretty soon you're away from the screeds and you're into books about banking and drugs. And the hardest thing I could find was books about secret societies. Because my dad, he didn't mention skull and bones. The only thing that he had mentioned was, well, I've said this so many times, it's not funny, but (laughs) my dad, the day before my 20th birthday, and took me into a room at the house with this professor from Vanderbilt, Dr. D.F. Fleming. He didn't say hi or anything. I just sat down and he sitting down, he looked at me and he says, Vietnam War is about drugs. There's these secret societies behind it. And I'm thinking, okay, he's talking about the mafia. And then he says, and communism is all a sham. These same secret societies are behind it. It's all a big game. And at that point in time, I think my dad's nuts. You know, I mean, I've been stuffed under the desk because the Ruskies were going to bomb us and it doesn't compute. And so I'm trying to think what's going on. And this little light bulb comes on and says, oh, dad is having the drug talk with me (sighs) because he hadn't had the other one. I was already married and had a six month old kid, but I was growing my hair long and smoking pot. And so I start to straighten up in my chair and I'm waiting for my dad to tell me to stop smoking pot. But he doesn't. He tells me all about his intelligence career, which had never been mentioned in the house, except for discussions between me and my brother and sister. And then they went in to start talking about how my dad and this doc, they had been involved in putting together an assessment report for Eisenhower administration. And my dad started telling me they're playing out a loose scenario in Vietnam because in this document, it said, well, if this happens, this is probably what happened and blah, 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 blah. And he said, they're playing out a loose scenario. And I'm 19, well, almost 20. And I'm still trying to get my head around the fact that, Hey kid, we want you to go over there to this country and we want you to kill people. Mm-hmm. And then they say, and there's rules about how you have to kill them. <laughs> you know? And so I'm trying to get my head around that. And then I have my dad telling me that they're playing out a lose scenario. I mean, that just doesn't compute at all. Mm. Just doesn't compute. And then they start going into psychological warfare and sway pieces. And it becomes very apparent that I have no idea what my dad's talking about. I mean, it just doesn't compute. And so it took me a long, long time to come across. Professor Sutton's book, America's Secret Establishment. He put it out in 1986. I came across it in 1988. And it made sense of what my dad was trying to tell me. 
But at that point in time, my dad was real ill. He would had Parkinson's for at least 10 years by then and had been taking all kinds of medication. And he soon died in early 1990 of pancreatic cancer. So I really never got to talk to him. But then later on, after he died, I got to go through his papers and was very, very interesting. The most interesting thing was at the time I was trying to figure out CIA drugs. I was trying to figure out about the Golden Triangle and the town of Chiang Mai, Thailand, because all my research showed that it was a heroin city at that time. And all the big banks had branches there, and there's a four-lane highway to the Golden Triangle. Right. And I'd been told that in my lifetime, it had been a small town. Now it's the second largest city in Thailand. So after my dad dies, I'm looking at his papers, and he had taken a trip in 1956 that had really changed things because my dad soon left the CIA. He visited Ed Lansdale in Vietnam at that time. and so. I see in this 56 trip that he'd been in Chiang Mai. Good. I can ask my mom next time I see her how big Chiang Mai was in 1956. So next time I'm at my parents' house, I ask my mom, I say, mom, how big was Chiang Mai in 1956 when you were there? And she says, oh, it wasn't very big. The biggest thing in town was the church. I've got some pictures. And so she's sitting on the couch and right next to her is her bookcase. And up there is a bunch of her picture books, and I'm pulling down the picture book from that 1956 trip. She says, and that's when I stopped believing everything I read in the newspapers. And that really perked my ears up because my mother was a very good CIA wife. I would ask her questions all the time, and she says, I don't know anything. I don't know anything. <laughs> I says, Mom, what, what do you mean? Because you know, she said that's when she stopped believing everything she read in the newspapers. And she says, well, We'd been in Toy Ninh, Vietnam, and we went from there to Bangkok and Chiang Mai. And when we were in Bangkok and Chiang Mai, the big story in the newspaper was about this big battle in Vietnam right where we had been. And she said, there was no battle. We were having a picnic. Uh. Okay. So I turned the picture book back. And I see, yeah, there's my parents in Toy Ninh, Vietnam. There's a picture of my dad with Lansdale, and there's some other pictures of Ed Lansdale. And then there's this beautiful, just gorgeous picture of my mother. She's just vivacious in it. And I ended up showing it to my siblings, and it became one of her main pictures in her memorial. You can see in this picture, she's standing up, and her skirt's kind of swirling. And on the ground underneath, you can see Lansdale sitting there with a plate and Obviously, they're having a picnic, and there's these people with fatigues and all those ranger-type hats. And what my mother writes next to the picture, it says Eudora, because that's her name, says Eudora, out from Saigon with Colonel Lansdale and North Vietnamese military leaders. <laughs> so you have a picnic, but you tell the world that you're having a battle. <laughs> why do you do that well you got to get the side pardon you got to get the people in the villages to say well who are you for who are you for you harden the sides and then they sent american new zealand australian canadian boys and girls and others to war mm -hmm. 
and they only went to war for one year. Okay. Those boys and girls knew that if they survived one year, they got to go back and go see their friends and do what they were doing. Yeah. And if the time when my dad had this meeting in 56 at Toy Nin, Vietnam, which is also the home of a secret society cult called Cao Dao, Lansdale had recently taken over the Golden Triangle. Because when the Americans went into Vietnam after uh, Bien Van Phu, and actually Lansdale had been there before then, but when America officially went in there after Bien Van Phu, or however you say that name, <laughs> the French intelligence and Corsican Mafia didn't leave the Golden Triangle. They stayed there. And there's a book called The Chinese Triads. It's actually written by, oh, I can't think of his name right now, but he's a big Oswald did it guy. In this first book, and it talks about how uh, Colonel Lansdale went and got his own Corsican, Lucian Conan, and had one of the very few shooting wars between Western intelligence agencies and actually went up and took over the Golden Triangle. Hmm. So what my daddy was saying was absolutely true. Vietnam War was about drugs. It was about taking boys and girls to hell for one year and getting some of them addicted to the heroin that was being proffered to them by anybody that was 12 years and up. And then after a year, they went home as a junkie. And what does a junkie do? They sell junk. <laughs> That's right. And that was about creating this drug culture. Because here's one thing that I've deduced through my years of studying conspiracy theory and reading books is that we all together as a society and our unit of values have fail safe devices because we really aren't into killing ourselves off, going and jumping off cliffs. We're actually more into being fruitful and multiplying. Mm -hmm. And so our first fail safe device is known as the dialectic. I call it the dark hallway because you're in a dark hallway and you might go in and you bump into one side and then after a while you might bump into the other side. Now, I say some things I know are true about secret societies, intelligence agencies, and drug running. And then I find people that I know are spooks saying stuff just a little bit more outrageous. There's truth, but it has some lies in it. Because by controlling the extremes, you control the middle. Yes. So this dialectic fail-safe device can be manipulated. Is that it? Well, no, we have another fail-safe device. Mm -hmm. And that is called the cycle of generations. And there's a great book called Generations, History of America's Future by Strauss and Howe. Trying Day doesn't publish this one, but it's a great book anyway. In there, they show that there's a reactive, an adaptive, a civic, and an idealistic generation of cohorts that work together to move history forward. Because America, when it started, wasn't perfect, and we still aren't, but we're always working towards a more perfect union. America at its core is governance from the bottom up. 
And the secret societies always want to have governance from the top down. Mm -hmm. So in this book, Generations, they show that all during America, there was only one generation that didn't cohere, that didn't come together. And this was the generation that were teens and preteens in 1860s. And some people joined generations before, some of them joined generations after, some of them just went out in the woods and did weird stuff. And so they talk about in there, it was because of the assassination of a president, war, and then opium. And this was a civic generation that didn't cohere. What did that mean? Well, that meant by the time that those teens and preteens grew up, our civics went off the rails because we didn't have a civics generation. What happened there? Well, the secret societies, because of opium, took us to war and also because they like war. Mm -hmm. The Spanish-American War was brought to us by yellow journalism and a false flag. They said, oh, the Spanish blew up the main. Well, they didn't. There's a great big naval report that shows that, well, gosh, it was blown up from the inside, hmm. not the outside. And you see, you had a gentleman by the name of Teddy Roosevelt. Well, during the lead up to the Spanish-American War, Teddy Roosevelt was under Secretary of Navy. One day, the Secretary of Navy, he had the gout, and he went home early. Teddy went up to the desk and sent off a whole bunch of missives. When the Secretary of Navy came back, he said, Teddy, what did you do? And he never went home early again. Hmm. Because if you look at the Spanish-American War, a lot of the yellow journalism was all devoted to getting the American public all hopped up against Spain, how they were treating the people in Cuba. This was one of the first mentions of concentration camps and all this type of stuff. So they finally got the American people. And after the main blew up, they were able to take our country to war. But if you look at the historical record, we didn't go to Cuba right away. But what did we do right away? We took the Philippines. Because that's what Teddy had done. He'd sent off these notices to Perry. and. Our ships came in, and the Filipino people were already fighting the Spanish. And we met them on the beach, and we said, my little brown brother, we need to take care of you. And we fought an horrific war there, raped, pillaged, burned villages. Mark Twain got himself in a lot of trouble talking about it. And why did we do that? They did that because of opium. Mm -hmm. Skull and Bones started by... Alonzo Taft and William Huntington Russell. William Huntington Russell family business was Russell and Company, which was the third largest opium smuggling company in the world and the largest in the United States. And they became very powerful because after the uh, first opium war, Russell and Company was the only business in Canton because the French and everybody else left, but the Americans stayed. So we made some very, very good contacts. And I mean, you think there's any secret societies in China? 
I mean, I don't know. <laughs> so, you know, you got these secret societies from the West making very good contacts with these Chinese. And so they had this cash cow. At the second opium war, opium became legal. It took a little while for these Chinese to figure out, well, wait a minute, I don't need you smugglers anymore. But if you look at the historical record, up until Skull and Bones sold their thing to these German folks, they had 85% of the emerging steel infrastructure in the Far East and calling railroads and steamships. Mm. When they finally sold it, it had gone down to 15% because they'd lost their cash cow. And so the Spanish-American War, we took the Philippines. We sent over Arthur MacArthur as the first military governor. They declared the war over before it was over and sent over William Howard Taft as the first civilian governor. William Howard Taft was a member of the Order of Skull and Bones, son of one of the founders, Alonzo Taft, the only person in history to be both president of the United States and chief justice of the Supreme Court. And when he was over there, McKinley asked him twice to be on the Supreme Court. And Taft was a big guy, and he looked good in black robes. And it was already acknowledged that that's what he wanted to do, was be on the Supreme Court. Well, McKinley asked him twice. He turned him down. And then McKinley was shot, and Roosevelt was president. And Roosevelt asked him to be Secretary of War, and he says, okay, I'll come back and be Secretary of War. My daddy was Secretary of War. If you look at the historical record between McKinley asking him to be on the Supreme Court and Roosevelt asking him to be Secretary of War and leaving the Philippines, he made opium illegal for the first time in modern Asia. Hmm. And if you make it illegal, I guess then you need smugglers, right? Indeed. And then Taft helped start the Hague and the Shanghai Conventions which gave us the prohibitions that we have today. And those prohibitions have nothing to do with our health, with our community, or our children. Those prohibitions have to do with keeping plants illegal so that you can sell them sometimes for more than gold. <laughs> and some of these plants in certain places can be grown three times a year. Right. So they had this plan again to try and make the, the 1960 kids not cohere because by having these kids in the 1860s not cohere, especially the civic group, uh, they were able to completely transform our republic because after the Spanish-American War, well, we went to war every 20 years, every generation. What'd you do in the war, Daddy? What'd you do in the war? The other thing is, is through manipulation, they were able to get in the income tax and fake money, the Federal Reserve. So you've got those two in place, and then you got to get the people in debt. So you have World War I, and then you have World War II. And one thing they did in World War II, they says, oh, you know, we got to beat the Japs and the Huns, and oh, I tell you, it's going to take money, and everybody's got to sacrifice. And we're going to have a victory tax. Well, you know, it's not going to last forever. and We're going to make it easier for you to pay. We're going to go to your employer and we're going to take it directly out of there. Won't that be great? What that did, okay, it raised 
the people paying income tax from about 20% of the population to 60% of the population. So 1960s, they're working on to make it so the boomer generation doesn't cohere. We don't come together. We're just this pieced out, drugged out generation. That's what they want. Mm -hmm. And so they have to have in place by 1950, three things. The modern education system, dumbing us down. And that was brought to us quite openly through a Masonic program started in the 20s, very openly. And then the other thing they need to have in place was television. Not just television, but television that ran at 60 cycles per second that left a little flicker there. Because if you read any book about hypnosis, it'll tell you that a 60 cycle flicker will put you into a trance, make you believe what you're seeing. The brain will trick the body into sitting in front of it because the brain's addicted to it. Mm. Television patents go back to the 20s. And you see, only North America and Japan run on the NTSC system that runs at 60 cycles. All the rest run at 55. Wow. Because these secret societies are targeting America. And they don't like Japan either. They like to use Japan. Basically, like I say, we were supposed to be this pieced out, drugged out generation. Mm -hmm. So they need to have television, the modern education system, and a nascent drug culture, the beats and whatnot. So what happens is LSD and marijuana to a certain extent. Cheers. They did this huge, big psychological operation, psychological warfare operation about marijuana being a gateway drug. It's not really a gateway drug, but they wanted to do that so that people would be predisposed. And heroin, the dynamic of heroin's pretty easy. Here, kid, you want some? Oh, <laughs> you'd like some more? Well, then how about your friends? Now, LSD can be used to disrupt, but it doesn't lend itself to control. Mm-hmm. I mean, you turn somebody into a junkie and they're behind the eight ball. They got to keep their nose to the grindstone so they can get some more. Yeah. LSD does different things to different people. And it just wasn't controlled. So basically what happened was the boomer generation, we weren't supposed to cohere. Like I said, we're supposed to be a pieced out, drugged out generation. We did cohere. We cohered as hippies around a joint being smoked around a circle. Yeah. And the, History Channel did a big two-hour special of the hippies. Okay, what came out of the hippies? And they said at the end of the day, what came out of the hippies was the personal computer and the internet. And my posit is those are the tools that we as a society, all of us together, are using to fight the corruption. And that's what it is. It's corruption. It's people using secrecy to lie, cheat, and steal and corrupt our government and corrupt our social order. Right. And the internet is a bit of a double-edged sword, but I absolutely see what you're saying. Yeah, well, a lot of these things are double-edged swords. Things are things, right? (laughs) It depends on what you do with them. I can take a gun, I can use it as a hammer, use it as a gun, or I can do lots of different things. So it gets down to, we have free will. We can do what we want. And these people have to manipulate that. Now, Another thing I deduced in looking at this for a long time is here is how the secret societies 
here's their control mechanism. It's a Leviathan of three levels, and each level has three parts. And the top level is mining, metal, and money. And you think about it, if you could control the mining, where the metal comes from, that the money's supposed to be based on, you'd be in a pretty good position, right? Yeah. And so when I look at Skull and Bones, I find that, gosh, there's all these people that own mines and all these mining engineers and stuff. Mm -hmm. And then I had a book, and I strongly recommend people reading. It's called Calling All Angels. And this gentleman came at me. He had this big book called The Gold Grab. I mean, it was eight, 900 pages, and it was thick and dense. And he was a victim, and victims have... They have a way of writing. They want to take you down every alley because it gives them some validation because this guy had been attacked by George Bush, all kinds of stuff, because he was a mining engineer. His daddy was a mining engineer. His granddaddy was a mining engineer. And his great granddaddy was a miner who was a 49er, made a stake in 49, was part of the Comstock load and was, you know, a president of Central Pacific. And this guy could affect him. And I... He says, okay, Stephen, well, get your second book out here. I mean, he finally got the gold grab printed in Poland, but according to World Catalog of Books, it's not even an official book, and it's so hard to find, it's not funny. But we did this Calling All Angels book, and I knew it was going to cause some problems, but he really wanted it out, and I says, okay, let's do it. I got his book to him. He was living in London, and he was dead in seven days. He got run over by a hit-and-run lorry. Wow. The book tells a lot of story about Stanford and how these secret societies, I mean, it's a long story. But the internet and the personal computer allows me, with help from some friends, to be a publisher. And the internet allows me to tell people about it. I mean, there's this whole new media being created. So get back to this Leviathan, top level mining metal and money. The middle is very active area. They use war a lot and different things, but it's drugs, guns, and oil. And in oil, we also include the medical establishment because a lot of the big pharma is made from oil. You see, it was actually in 1855, Dr. Benjamin Silliman Jr., a member of the Order of Skull and Bones, with petroleum rock oil sample, he made, for the very first time, gasoline and paraffin. And he said, gee, gentlemen, I think you have some very valuable products from a very inexpensive process here. As soon as he wrote that note to the Pennsylvania Rock Oil Company of New York, it was sold to investors in New Haven, Connecticut, where Skull and Bones is based. And the Bissells, who had started the Pennsylvania Rock Oil Company of New York, and the Townsends, who they had gone to financing for, soon had their very sons in Yale in the order of Skull and Bones. And there's Rockefellers in Skull and Bones. The only reason we go to the oil store is because they own it. Right. There are a bunch of other ways to make energy. Yes. And then uh, the drugs part I've kind of already talked about. And then guns, arms. Connecticut, where Skull and Bones is based, is 
All the Browning automatic rifles, World War I, World War II, were produced in a factory in a straight line up from the Temple of Skull and Bones on High Street in New Haven. And many gun manufacturers, Sikorsky helicopters, the submarines were all there in Connecticut. GE was in Connecticut. And until they got the bright idea of, oh, gosh, we better spread this all around the country so we've got Congress. It was heavily, heavily based there in Connecticut through Skull and Bones. And then where this Leviathan meets the road, it's media, because they have to control the media or, you know, (laughs) other people might start talking. (laughs) And then you have movies slash music because you've got to control the culture or it'll bite you in the ass. And then at the very end is quote unquote magic. The ability to hoodwink us and their preponderance on doing mass trauma rituals to scare the heck or the bejesus out of you. Mm. Because at its core, the Kennedy assassination was a mass trauma ritual. It was the killing of the king. And 9-11, again, was a mass trauma ritual. It Mm -hmm. puts you into shock. You smash the archetypes and then you build them back up the way that you want. It's criminal what they're doing and i'd like to see it stop (laughs) amen amen wow and you've broken down some super interesting subtext to history the whole secret societal structure as well the generational cycles i mean it all just makes such methodical sense and on the subject of jfk i'm sure that some of the added layers that the books you've put out i'm sure they've ruffled some feathers and That's something I kind of wanted to ask you about because we have the mainstream narratives that are completely controlled. We know that. Then you have to be skeptical of really any story that reaches your TV or movie screen. Like you said, they control the opposition as well. You know, the New York Times and CNN don't just cover things that they don't want us to know. And so in the JFK assassination context, we have this famous Oliver Stone film about JFK. Meanwhile, Dr. Mary's monkey and me and Lee, they're right there, primed for everyone to know about them. And it goes untapped. It doesn't make it to the Hollywood machine where a lot of books are propelled to the general collective unconscious. I mean, everybody knows about something once it's made into a movie. I'm just curious, has anyone ever tried to take these uh, alternative threads that you're familiar with, like the Dr. Mary's Monkey Saga, and elevate it to that level? Tons. Tons. I've been down there a bunch of times talking to people. First off, Daniel Esselin, true story of the Bilderberg Group. He had a contract for a $120 million blockbuster movie that had got through his agent in Europe. And part of the reason that Daniel, you know, after nobody would publish his book and he liked Jaded Task by Wayne, he called me up. And that's how I started to publish his books because nobody in New York would publish them. And one of the reasons he was doing that was because he had this contract and the contract wouldn't be valid unless he had a book in English. And so we go to LA and we meet the people that own the Terminator franchise. Hmm. They're the ones that have given the contract to Daniel. 
And we meet him down there at the Four Seasons in Beverly Hills. And I mention, I say, well, you know, you might have some political problems. And they says, well, you know, once they had their next movie out, they'd have enough money in their bucket. Wouldn't make any difference. I says, okay. <laughs> and there was a strike going on, writer's strike or something, but they were ahead of the strike. Then their movie was coming out and the video game was coming out on it. And they did announce in Madrid where Daniel was living. They announced a $126 million blockbuster movie on the true story of the Bilderberg Group. Well, within a few weeks, that company was bankrupt. And went out there on the internet and people were saying, gosh, we really don't know what happened. They still have their money. <sighs> so then a little bit later on, a gentleman who'd been executive producer at 24, he was seeing how the powers that be were using 24 to program and psychological warfare. So he decided to look and see if he could find what was really going on. And he came across trying to, and he says, oh gosh, you guys have some books here that you know, kind of tell what's really going on. And they wanted to make movies out of quite a few of our books. Hmm. One of them they're working on is Franklin Scandal. Wow. And I mean, they're also working on Terrible Mistake and Dr. Mary's Monkey. And they've got a Academy Award winning director. And I'm there. They come down. They've got these meetings. And this place that's doing it, they've got financing, distribution, and production. They've got everything you need. And I start getting calls from this guy. First off. Michael Rupert walks into him and says, you can't make movies about that. You ought to make a movie about me. And then their place got broken into. Then he calls me up one time and they started getting computerized phone calls. He taped one of them and could see where it was coming from. And it was coming from a back office of a Boston FBI office. Hmm. They were saying, oh, we're glad you're doing this. You ought to do this, blah, 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 blah. And then they got another one from a back office of a Seattle FBI. And a guy calls me up and says, what's going on? I says, they're spoofing the federal phone system. It's very easy to spoof if you know what you're doing. And I'm sure the person's just right there in LA. Then he calls me up another time and says, you know, I can't shake this white SUV. I was following him all around. And this guy was driving a Ferrari. And then he calls me up again and says, well, they're trying to get me fired. They're putting out rumors that I'm out on Sunset selling Oxycontin at night. He said, my boss knows that's not true, so that's fine. And so they continued on. They continued working on these projects. Then he calls me up one day and says, I've got to take a sabbatical. And I say, why? And he says, well, somebody met my wife on a street corner and said, you know, if your husband doesn't stop what he's doing, we're going to kill him and then you. What are your children going to do? Wow. I says, yeah, okay, go on your sabbatical. <laughs> <laughs> and he calls me back in a couple of weeks and says, well, I guess we're just making Will Ferrell movies. Ah, wow. <laughs> and, I mean, 
Dr. Mary's monkey, not through me, but through uh, Mr. Haslam, he's, I think, sold the option on that for three or four times. People have tried. Finally, he's in the position, right? He says, I'm the executive producer right now. Because, I mean, they're amazing stories. Amazing stories. Yeah. Well, the 50th anniversary of the JFK, what did we get? We got Parkland. You know, I mean, they're obviously controlled. One thing that's going on right now, Trump was supposed to happen. In the 2016 election, they used the machines and the media and the BS to take Bernie down and to put Hillary in there. Mm -hmm. And then they use those same machines and media to put Trump in. Right. Because the Clintons have never been anything more than lieutenants in the crime family, in the Bush crime family. President of the United States, they've been lieutenants. Mm -hmm. And there's two big black operations of the American government. If you're a Rockefeller, you could do whatever you wanted. Yeah. So how come the Rockefellers went to two of our poorest states, West Virginia and Arkansas, and said, oh, you guys need some help in governance here, you know? Well, it's because our, our two biggest black operations of our government are continuance of government, where they have a complete shadow government all the way up to the president of the United States, and then the drugs. Continuance of government is based in West Virginia, parts of Pennsylvania and a couple places here. And, and they've got a big presence in California now, too. The other one is drugs. And that was based out of Arkansas. It's because they're mountainous areas. And you can do whatever you want in the mountains until somebody with a gun comes up there and says, don't. Yeah. You've never seen any cocaine get caught in Walmart trucks, have you? You've never seen any cocaine in the Tyson chickens. You see, all these drug trades, you have quasi-official drug trades going back to the 1920s and actually farther, okay? And whoever's at the end of a drug trade within the government, they have a little fiefdom because they have independent money and they have intelligence but they started stepping on each other's toes you know you had the dea busting cia ops and blah 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 <laughs> right right so basically george hw bush as vice president under ronald reagan was given the ages to take all these the separate drug trades and try and put them more together and put them under uh, quasi official generally through the nsa and have them, a lot of it run through Arkansas. And we live in a wild world. Yes, yes. All of us see that something isn't right. Something's hinky. Something needs to change. And that's one reason why we have things like you doing your higher side chats. And I mean, you aren't the only one out there doing podcasts. You know, no. there, there's a lot of them. And it's continuing to grow. And not only that, but people are spending their time listening to them mm -hmm. instead of listening to the news. And I watch the news, and I find good things in the news. But like I tell people, caveat lector, be aware of what you read. Don't be afraid to read something. 
but be careful on what you believe and, and what you're going to base what you do on mm-hmm. because there's just so much out there. I really think you have to expose yourself to lots of different viewpoints. Yeah. I don't care who he is. You don't know it all. We all have something to learn. Mm-hmm. Now, also, I'm going to be in L.A. April 13th and 14th at the L.A. Times Book Fair. Sean Stone will be there, Oliver Stone's kid. We have a book of his called New World Order. Very good. It's about secret societies. And then John Barber will be there. He's the only guy to win five Emmys. His book is called Your Mother's Not a Virgin. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's a amazing book. He got fired from MLA because he brought out Jim Garrison. He was the only guy that for the last 10 years of his life, Jim Garrison would talk to and give interviews to. And then also Chris Fulton, the author of The Inheritance, will be there sometime. And Dick Russell also said that he would stop by. Wow. And then also April 5th, 6th, and 7th, we're going to be at a JFK conference put on by the JFK Historical Group at the uh, Olney College in Olney, Illinois. Again, John Barber's going to be there. Chris Fulton is going to speak there. And then we're releasing a new book. It'll be one of its first showings. It's called Burying the Lead. And it's done by a professor at a college in South Carolina, a story of JFK assassination in the media. And it's an incredible book. and just shows how they... Uh, Played us for chumps. Hmm. It's very good. Also, another book out there we've got is called Prolonging the Agony. It's about World War One. It shows how that they just, the war could have been done a lot earlier, but they kept it going. And it's just also got printed in uh, Germany by two guys from Scotland. Very, very good book. You know, and then we've got At the Cold Shoulder of History by uh, James Jenkins guy was a 21-year-old in the Navy learning to be a pathologist. And they called him up and said, the president's body's going to come here. I want you to go get the morgue ready. So he was in the morgue from like three o'clock in the afternoon till nine o'clock the next morning. He uh, stood at the shoulder of the president during the autopsy. When they needed the body moved, he moved it. He helped take the brain out. He helped take the organs out. He helped dress the president's body the next morning. And normally when they dress bodies, they split the clothes. Well, they didn't split his clothes. So it was quite a ordeal to get him on. And they wouldn't allow this guy to testify for the Warren report, wouldn't allow him to testify. And when the house did their committees and it's an amazing story. Mm. We've got two esoteric Hollywoods by uh, Jay Dwyer. Yes. Where he gives his spin on what he sees out there. And we've got Betrayal, a book by one of the JFK's honor guard who helped carry the casket off of the plane. And he had bought the uh, JFK story as told for many, many years until a gentleman by the name of Phil Singer decided to get the people from Bethesda and the honor guard have a reunion, got them all together. And there was almost a fight broke out 
because these guys in the honor guard had, that was their job. Their job was to protect the president's body. And they got there and this one guy from Bethesda says, well, you know, we actually got the president's body about half hour before you guys even showed up. And these guys in the honor guard wanted to punch these guys out. But finally, both of them figured out, wait a minute, you guys aren't lying. You guys aren't lying. And the betrayal that this honor guard felt was just palatable. It's an amazing book. And then you've talked about me and Lee and Dr. Mary's monkey. They're just amazing books. Yeah. And a lot of people, I call them the poo boss because it's funny in, in the JFK community right now, we have two conferences. We have the controlled conference ah. and the uncontrolled conference. In, in conference, you can only talk about me and Lee derisively and call her names. And you can't bring up the fact that maybe LBJ had foreknowledge. It's absolutely ridiculous, but they have prevailed upon people to, you know, put me and Lee and say, oh, well, she just made it all up. It was so funny. I mean, when I started these, well, she's made this whole thing up. And then I got, well, okay, maybe she was this smart kid, but she never went to New Orleans. Okay, well, maybe she went to New Orleans, but she never knew Lee. Okay, well, maybe she knew Lee, but they were never lovers, you know? Huh. Moving the goalpost. Right. And the years that have been wasted by denigrating her story instead of actually looking at it, it's almost criminal. I mean, I get people, this one guy, he says, well, this address is in the book. It doesn't exist. She's making all this up. And I says, well, okay, the house that I live in used to have a different address about 10 years ago. Maybe it was something like, oh, no, she's making it all up as well. And I says, okay, Monday morning, I get a call, the library there in Florida. They say, oh, yeah, that address, yeah, that used to be uh, the house of her father-in-law. Then I get somebody else from Australia because... Judy knew something was going on, so she saved all kinds of ephemera, you know, bus tickets and transfer tickets. And we put them in the book, and this guy said, well, she bought all those off eBay. And I says, okay, please, find them. Go buy them. And they came up with some transfer ticket from the 60s and says, see, yeah. <laughs> I says, well, okay. A really sad part of it is, a big reason why both Dr. Mary's monkey and me and Lee, because he'd written a book called Mary Fairy and the monkey virus before he did Dr. Mary's monkey. Mm -hmm. And that one didn't include Judith Fairy Baker. And that was a big hit along all the JFK. But as soon as he brought in Judith Fairy Baker, they just tried to stuff that book and tried to stuff me and Lee. Hmm. It's really sad. A lot of it has to do with not just the JFK part, but the medical part. Oh, yeah. The medical stuff changed my whole view of everything when he's talking about the Sulk and Sabin polio vaccine tainted with a cancer-causing monkey virus. That has to change your opinion of the whole cancer epidemic. Right. The whole thing's quite provable. Matter of fact, there's a great big book called The Virus and the Vaccine that documents the whole thing. But they don't want to have this discussion because, again, they're shutting down people's free speech about vaccines. And, you know, this goes back to, I was saying, well, what's going to happen? They've done a lot of computer gaming. If they just 
oh, for some political reason, put guys with guns on the street corners. All that does is drives the far left and the far right together. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that actually pencils out is medical. How come during 9-11 and a couple other big crises type things, they had these, you know, medical, like the anthrax, because they want you to associate with that. And then also because the medical stuff is the only stuff that pencils out. The laws are all in place. They can force vaccinate people. They can force people to move all over the place. They can put people on the street corners with guns because remember when that anthrax happened, you had people, they got a box and where was that box? It was out in their front lawn and they were hitting it with a 10 foot stick because it makes people irrational when you start talking about the health part of the whole thing. The medical one is the only one that actually completely pencils out. Yeah. It's a silent killer. People won't see it like they'll see a guy on the street corner with a gun. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the laws are in place for them to... Avoid being held responsible, avoid lawsuits. Right. And But like here in Eugene, what do we have? Well, we have a social thing and they've got to control the people. What are they going to do? Well, we can look at Chile. Okay, what'd they do? They used the sports stadiums. Mm-hmm. Here in Eugene, we've got a sports stadium. It's real close to the freeway and everything. And then right across the street from it, what do you have? Well, you've got a National Guard thing with all kinds of fences that don't allow people out. And then you've got the juvenile correctional thing for the harder cases. They have in place, but do they have the fingers at the end of the guns? You know, they want to get us fighting, you know, mm-hmm. Trump's base versus Bernie's base. Oh, we hate each other. Blah, 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 blah. So they can possibly use that as a pretense because I think at some point in time, people are going to feel their oats and I hope for the best. <laughs> well, cheers to that. I want a better world for my children. Yes. And it is hard to stay hopeful and positive, but you do seem like a positive guy overall. You do seem hopeful. The rabbit hole goes deep. Times are troubled, but, you know, we're not out yet. (laughs) No. So, like I say, go to tryingday.com. Check out our books. America's Not the Secret. Franklin Scandal. American in the Basement. Sinister Forces Series. uh, Self-Portrait of a Scoundrel. LBJ and the Kennedy Killing. Confessions of a DC Madam. The Great Heroine Coup. Silent Coup, Prophets of War, Dorothy, Tavistock Institute. I'm sure there's one there that you might find interesting. (laughs) Yes, indeed. That was really going to be my last question for you was, uh, you know, giving people all the good stuff they need. And there's a good list of books to keep you busy. Tryingday.com. You told us about some upcoming events. It's really been an honor, man. I really do have a lot of respect for you and what you've done and the mark you've left on the world. And uh, I will keep trying to use this new media to highlight that old media. And you keep coming out with the great books, man. Thanks a million and take care out there. Thank you. And God bless. Rock me like a hurricane, THC listeners. How about that? A good old-fashioned return to the secret conspiratorial history of these here United States.
And if I didn't say it enough already, I am a big Chris Milligan fan. And I just feel a sort of kinship with him in the sense that he can look at the body of work that he's published, the company he's built, and think of all the influence he's had, all the minds that have been affected by the work that he put out, that he amplified. All this stuff that he's personally contributed to conspiracy culture and how he's been able to elevate the discourse and keep a high standard along the way, it's super impressive and it's sort of something that I strive for with what I'm doing. I think he's an inspiration in that regard. I know it's not easy because there are those people who will talk a lot of shit about those who are savvy enough to find a way to make a living and push back against the machine at the same time. Which I don't get, because we all have to make money. Why is that only a criticism of somebody in the conspiracy realm? If making money at what you do somehow makes you untrustworthy, we shouldn't trust anyone at anything. How do I know this pharmacist is giving me the right prescription? They're just trying to make money. This mailman's probably not giving me the right mail. He's just getting a paycheck. Like a person's integrity has nothing to do necessarily with making a living. And what about those people who are making money at their jobs and exacerbating our problems? Shouldn't they be criticized twice as hard? Ah, see, now I'm getting all worked up. <laughs> but Chris has done just a great job of fighting an uphill battle, promoting unpopular truths, and I'm really just glad I got to talk to him about his whole story. Yes, the history is fascinating and important, but I really liked the anecdotes we got into about Trine Day, which was more on the Plus Show. But I mean, can you actually imagine if Dr. Mary's monkey got a true film treatment? Can you imagine Edward James almost playing Dr. Oshner and freaking Jamie Lee Curtis playing Dr. Mary Sherman and people sitting in a theater? To see this film about cancer-causing monkey viruses and biological warfare and Lee Harvey Oswald in New Orleans, it would be amazing. Chris even mentioned that the Franklin scandal was actually on the table for a while, and that is so crazy. This stuff is pretty raw. Just like the producer who said he'll have way less trouble in his life if he just keeps making Will Ferrell movies, yeah. Chris could have spent his life publishing books like Life of Pi or Ready Player One. Nothing wrong with them, but nice softball lobs that would get picked up, turned into a cash cow, keep the slack-jawed stupid look on all our faces, and now he's out sipping champagne with Ja Rule on his way to the Bahamas. It just makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside to have this platform and be able to highlight a guy for professional work that wasn't always easy or appreciated like it should be, and present it all to you guys in a way that maybe makes him feel like a large number of people are thankful for what he's done. Because we are a large number of people. You would actually need several Madison Square Gardens to hold us all. That's kind of cool. So I hope you check out Trine Day if you never have. I've read more of their books than probably any other publisher. Maybe Feral House and Inner Traditions would be contenders also, but this is one of those episodes where I would love there to be no question in Chris's mind that THC was worth his time, 
and would be the best place for his new release authors to appear. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You know what I'm saying? So please be so kind as to help me out there a little bit. Maybe drop him a line. It's only going to help me make THC a better podcast for you. Because there are so many podcasts now trying to get into the pipeline, right? It's all about pipelines. And publishers and authors, they've got to decide which ones are best for them. So if you think I give a good interview and you like getting people for two hours instead of the typical one, help me stay in the pipeline. It's not like I get my badge and now I'm in for life. It's something that always kind of needs reinforcement. But as for the things that Chris actually said, I really like that he mentioned the control the extremes, control the middle strategy for keeping secrets, muddy the waters, and take the truth, and weave in a bunch of fantastic elements, and once it's linked to something crazy, nobody's going to believe it. Obviously that happens sometimes, which sucks. (laughs) Because I know there's truth to that, but I also really like hearing from people on those extremes. I like putting out those shows, but I never want to inadvertently do more harm than good. It's a difficult choice sometimes, but that's why I just say, yeah, maybe. And it's up to you guys to decide what sounds credible. But Chris's dad's career sounds pretty wild. And there's a real butterfly effect kind of thing going on because he had that one conversation with Chris, told him the truths that had yet to be revealed. And now Chris has told that story all over the place for years, told it to tens of thousands of people just today. And that's really cool in that sort of Bilbo Baggins, small actions which snowball into huge impacts kind of way, right? And it's also kind of a lesson in nuance because I I really don't know the extent of Chris's father's work or everything he did in his career, but he found out that the CIA had a drug smuggling operation and he said, I'm not down with that. And so he got pushed out and his career and the income that he had to provide for his family definitely changed. I don't know to what extent or if it was ever difficult for him but there were consequences so i think we should i don't know tip our hat to chris's dad and i can understand how after these comments and the comments on my last show some people might be thinking what is the deal here why are you trying to get us to think about good people and bad organizations well it's just something that came up i guess almost three weeks in a row really if you consider some of the things that Mr. Suspicious Observers had to say. But I think back to something that Dave Chappelle said when he was commenting on the Me Too movement and all the venom that these women came out with. And believe me, I get it. But there were some male actors like Ben Affleck who tried to say, yeah, I'm on the side of the Me Too movement. And then a bunch of people tweeted at him, what the fuck are you talking about? You're part of the problem, yeah, yeah. And it's like, whoa, I'm trying to tell you I'm on your side. And the way Dave put it is that in a lot of these movements, you can't be overly vigilant because you're going to need some imperfect allies. And I've just been kind of folding that into our community as well. 
just something I've been thinking about, I guess. I don't even know how much it applies, but I figured I'd mention it. I guess the point is that someone who was a cop or was in the CIA or worked for Big Pharma, that can't be a scarlet letter on them that means they're forever tainted. Because turning your back on the machine is hard enough. If you don't have the support of the people, why even do it? Because some people in these organizations can and do resist. Michael Rupert was another great example of that. Maybe we could even say John Perkins with Confessions of an Economic Hitman. Obviously, these people are the minority, but we should make sure that they get credit when they do expose the underbelly of the big machine and give us a peek behind the curtain. Anyway, I also really liked Chris's breakdown of the secret societal structure. I think he touches on elements there that are sometimes left out of the equation, like mining. So I hope you learned something. I hope you were entertained, whether you just heard the first free hour or the extended plus version. As always, sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com slash subscribe to become a member. Today in the Plus Show, we got into a lot more questions on my part, because just to get through the history that is Chris's expertise takes about an hour in itself. But in the second hour, some of the things we talked about were where Skull and Bones activity has been in the last 20 years and Bonesmen in the current administration like Steve Mnuchin. Chris made some good points about using the Trump administration to restore confidence in American media and intelligence agencies. Mm, I thought that was a really great nuanced point about what Trump could be there for. But then we also talked about some upcoming stuff like the JFK inheritance book. Actually, that one's already out, but upcoming would be the School World Order. <laughs> I love that title. And uh, some of the Common Core stuff that's going on in the education system. Chris broke down some of the management and organizational elements of the secret societal structure, some stuff beyond their financial pipelines. Of course, we folded in the occult with magic and mass trauma rituals, the elite's endgame, and we rounded it out with a little talk about the corporatization of marijuana and the legalization thing there. Knowing all he knows about CIA drugs, you have to think that these organizations are getting their fair share of the green too, but I loved a lot of those insights. Thought it was a really good show. And in higher side news, the next joint session will be March 20th, 7 p.m. Pacific time. Definitely consider joining us. They've been getting better and better. I'm having a lot of fun, even though it seems like some of you guys know much more than I do. But hey, more power to you. So that's about it for me. I've been working with the editor to try to keep a little bit better pacing going forward. And I think we're off to a good start. I got some really great stuff on my calendar, and I'm psyched to get some of those next shows out for sure. So until then, I guess I declare this meeting of the Midnight Society officially closed. I've done my part. Your move, CIA drug smugglers, power pyramid players, and secret agents of the Skull and Bones. Your fucking move. Oh no, you see... The world isn't random, it's attached to puppet strings 
Control over everything The nine to five is trying to steal ya Now don't that job seem silly Hello, can you hear me? Or should I play back recordings From some spy agency Wish we were younger and free I'll be thankful when it's all exposed The vast conspiracy There's such a difference Between us And the damn rush Hello from the highest side They're calling out a thousand cries They'll tell time. 